Good morning, Hill City. Give yourselves a hand for making it out in the horrific storm of Dallas life. It's so funny. Uh, uh, being from Louisiana, we were like, are, are you serious? Like, <laughs> this is nothing. The rain we would get uh, all our years of being there. If you've never made it through a hurricane, you have not lived. I'll tell you that right now. <clears throat> Well, I am so grateful that you're can, can you do me a favor? Can we clap for our Mansfield campus? They're meeting here in a little bit. We love you guys. And how about our online campus? Can we tell them, hey, we love you guys. Thanks for joining in with us this morning here in the Dallas, Texas area. Welcome to Hill City. And again, if you're brand new to us, uh, you're just, it means the world to us that you'd come spend your Sunday with us. And, um, and so as a result of that, we just try to always show how much, how grateful we are. So we have a little gift for anyone who might be brand new. Maybe you've come for a couple of weeks and you never went and got your gift. You can go get it. I promise it's okay. And you can say the preacher dude said it. And so out in the lo- lobby, you'll see like these little bistro tables with an iPad on it. We call those our guest service stations. And some of the sweetest people on the planet are out there just being nice and saying hello, and, and they'll help you get the little gift we have for you. And literally, you need that. It'll change the entire financial direction of your... I'm just kidding, but you'll like it. should be something nice. We're in a series titled Signs. Everybody say signs. Turn to the person next to you and say signs. And so what we're doing, we're basically going through the book of John. We've got a seven-week piece here, um, series. And what we're looking at, we, we found this passage in John chapter 20. Now, the, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they are the, they are the books of the Bible that tell us and, and, and literally record Jesus' life and teachings on the planet. And John, in his second-to-last chapter of his, uh, uh, of his Gospel, says this pretty incredible thing. And we'll look in chapter 20, verse 30, and this has kind of been our key verse for the whole series. He says that Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book so he's saying listen that jesus did so much another passage actually says he if if all the miracles that jesus did were put in the books of the earth there would not be enough books to hold all of the miraculous things that he did but john goes on he says verse 31 he says but these in other words the miraculous signs that i have recorded in my gospel these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. How many of you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Amen. Me too. The Son of God. And then, he, and then he explains that even further. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So not just by believing that you get heaven, but that you have life in his name. And I broke that word life in his name down for you to mean his divine nature. So, so he's saying, look, I'm going to give you these Seven miraculous signs that I experienced as one of his disciples. And I'm telling you what's going to happen is his divine nature is going to begin to well up inside of you. And the spirit of the living God is going to well up. And you're going to start seeing how Jesus act and live. And he literally has used these miraculous signs as a training point for his disciples. Now, Jesus had grown up doing carpentry work. And if you understand ancient times, there was not a carpentry school to attend. You didn't go to Votech. You didn't have four years or five years of, you know, uh, education uh, in, in reference to a trade. But most everyone lived in some type of trade concept. And, um, and so Jesus would have apprenticed probably with Joseph. 
his, you know, his, not his biological father, but his stepdad, if you will, or adopted dad. And so he would have grown up being trained. This is how you do it, buddy. Now you take that saw and you do like the, there you go. Good job. No, 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 not like that. You got to plug it in first, son. What's wrong with you? Okay. So he's got this whole, he's going to have, have had this whole apprenticeship thing. In fact, discipleship was a rabbi or a leader doing that very apprenticeship with the younger men that he is training. So the 12 apostles or the 12 disciples would have been in apprenticeship to learn the things of God through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so as Jesus is giving, or John, excuse me, is giving us Jesus's miraculous signs, what he's saying is, I'm going to let you in on the apprenticeship lessons that he was giving us through these miracles that he was doing. And we're calling those life lessons. And so we started, the first week we looked at that water and the wine uh, in, in, in the first couple chapters of the book of John. And then we went to the healing of the nobleman's son. We learned the life lessons there. And today we're going to look where Jesus heals a lame man. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 1. And you guys are still good to read the Bible in church, right? You're still good with that? I mean, just want to be sure I'm with the right folks. Okay. And so picking up in verse 1 of John chapter 5. Sometime later... Jesus went to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there was in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five colored, uh, covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who had been, the, who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, get up, exclamation mark. Pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. Verse 10, and so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fella who told you you could pick up your mat, pick up and walk? Verse 13, then the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Verse 14, later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews... That sucker. He went and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Verse 16. So, so because Jesus was doing these signs on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Look at verse 17. Then Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Verse 18. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Unbelievable, miraculous sign. Now, as we jump into it, let me give you a little bit of, uh, I always like to give you a little bit of context, culture, ancient way of thinking. We don't really think like some of the ways that they would have thought in ancient times. Think about how your grandma or your great-grandmother cooked versus how you cook. Think about how you, uh, your family used to do things some 50, 70 years ago and now how you do it with your family. So things change. And so I always want to bring you into kind of the context of what's being said here. So let's back up in verse one. It says, um, sometime later. So let's talk about the time frame. John brings out this statement sometime later. And what he's talking about is that the time has now passed 
between these other two miraculous signs that have been done. There, there has, some time has passed, and he's indicating that there's this chronological sequence. And we saw at the first one, he says, this is the first miraculous sign with the water and the wine. And then the noblewoman's son, he said, this is the second miraculous sign. Although he had done many miracles in between those first and second one, he called these special miraculous signs. And so he's saying this again. He's pointing out chronologically, this is really the third. Some time had really passed before he did one of these miraculous sign moments where he had some type of apprenticeship training for us to receive in the process of it. And the miracle, uh, the first two miracles, if you'll think about them, the miraculous signs, they really revealed his glory. This is the first moment that the supernatural work of Jesus created conflict, and Jesus knew that that was going to happen. And so this is the third great miraculous sign that John records, and knowing that it's going to create conflict, knowing that it's going to cause a problem. And the reason that is is because they're at the Sabbath. They're on a Jewish feast, if you will. And they're, where are they at? They're actually in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus has spent most of his miraculous times in Galilee. In fact, the other Gospels don't record Jesus' miraculous signs and wonders outside of Galilee, only recording for the most part within the miracles that he did in the Galilean region. And John then backs up and records something that he did in Jerusalem, something supernaturally that he did in Jerusalem. Why? Because from the country folks and kind of all out in the suburbs, Jesus comes to the big city, comes up into New York, and he comes up to L.A. or something like that, and he does this miracle, this supernatural thing with this, with this invalid, and he heals him kind of in the big city where there could have been a big stir and a lot of big things, and he does it in the midst of this feast, this, this Passover. Now, this is probably a high Passover, which means it's more like a Christmas or more like an Easter Sunday kind of thing. It's one of these kind of moments. So there's a lot of people there, and they're in Jerusalem. And again, why Jerusalem? Because in this moment, they have come from all over. And, and then he does this miracle along the pool of Bethsaida, Bethsaida, excuse me. There you go, Bethsaida. And he does it at this pool, and which is an interesting place in and of itself because these are these little pools. They're kind of like um, shallow um, swimming pools. And there's a couple of them, and they're somewhere uh, located between the sheep gate and the prison. And they are the spot that people who were came, um, <clears throat> they would come in town, they would go to the temple, but before they would go in the temple and, and have whatever engagements there, they would go do some ceremonial cleansing. They'll get in these little pools and they'll wash as a sign of washing their sins, repenting of their sins. And so along these pools, what happened was the people, think about a big city, think about your homeless crowd in a big city versus out in the country or out in the suburbs. And so this has become a gathering spot for people who are lame, as, as, as uh, John told us, who are blind, who, don't, who are paralyzed. And he gives a, kind of a list of two or three types of people who would have been hanging around these pools. Why? Because they're in a big city, and people are coming in for these moments to engage with God. And so now their hearts are tender because, come on, baby, we're going to go to Jerusalem. We're going to load up everything. It's going to be a couple-day couple journey. We're going to go, and we're going to go, and we're going to worship our God, and we're going to leave our town. We're going to pack up. We're going to pack up up the mules, the camels, whatever, and we're going to start heading towards Jerusalem because we're going, you know, Magigoria. We're going on the quest. We're going on this time to engage with God. And so they show up there to engage with God, and as they get to the place where they need to go do their ceremonial cleansing, all of the poor people, the hurting people are there. Their hearts are tender. They're on, you know, they're on the quest to go and engage with God. And so they're more apt to give alms to the poor, to help out folks, to be kind to people because they're not in 
work mode they're in, let's go to church more. You know how guilty you feel whenever you see somebody hurting on Sunday, you know, after church or something. You're like, oh, babe, we got to give them a dollar or something. They stand there with the little sign. On Monday, you're like, dude, get to work like the rest of us. What are you doing? Right? And so that's kind of the attitude of what's happening here. And so, and so they're all like, you know, alms for the poor. I can't move my legs. Oh, please, sir, could you help a little poor brother right now? And so, you know, like, dude, I'm trying to wash. Maybe give him some money. You know, and so that's kind of what's transpiring here. So it's a big deal, and there's thousands of people. I mean, the city explodes in population, kind of like, uh, you know, when Oklahoma and Texas plays uh, you know, over in the Cotton Bowl, you know, they make a lot of money. Dallas makes a lot of money on those games because people come in from all over. And so this is kind of what's happening here. People come from all over to worship God on the Sabbath for this particular feast, if you will. And Jesus shows up at it, which is super cool. And I, and I, and I think about how cool this is that Jesus goes to that area and there are all of these hurting people and he picks out the guy. Everybody say the guy. The guy. The man, I'll call him. And the Bible calls him, John calls him an invalid. Now, everyone probably has your own concept of what an invalid is. You maybe think that's a lame person. You may think that's a person who's got some kind of, you know, sickness, disease or something, or a special needs person. The bottom line is it's just uh, that word is used to me, <clears throat> especially here in Scripture, that they're in such dire physical situation um, that they cannot be successful in life. So whatever the disease is, whatever the harm is, whatever the dysfunction in their body is, they cannot function in life. They're an invalid, if you will. And the Bible says that this man, this particular man, has been there, has been like this for 38 years. 38 years. And so just by way, think about antiquity. Think about being sick and how long the lifespan for people before modern medicine and how quickly, uh, you know, pneumonia would kill if you got pneumonia or things like that. And so the fact that this man's had this situation or this disease or this, or maybe he's paralyzed, whatever it may be, he's been like this for 38 years. This dude is that old dude who's been there forever. He's been there forever. Everybody knows this guy's name. Everybody knows about him. He has been there 38 years. He is a professional beggar. He is a professional, um, you know, sickly person. He's a professional homeless person. He's, he's a pro at this thing. And this guy's got to be slick and sly because he's made it for 38 years when others have already fallen off the wagon, died off or whatever it may be. He's been hanging out, knowing to get to this pool somehow. And then Jesus comes to this man. And, and, and again, as we see, as we read in the passage, this guy, obviously, John points out to him that he's done something sinful that's put him in this situation. John, John kind of implies this when Jesus says to him uh, at that second encounter with him where Jesus says, now listen, stop your sinning or something worse even than what's happened to you before is going to happen again. And of course, Jesus is talking about heaven and hell and he's talking about righteousness in God. And, um, and, but he's also calling this guy out on his sinful nature. And so Jesus, backing up, Jesus goes to this man and he asks him the question. Everybody say the question. And the question he asks him is, would you like to get well? Doesn't that seem ludicrous to you? Hey, buddy. Yes. Would you like to get well? Like, duh. Are you serious? Like, why would you ask me that? Jesus has to ask us that. Because many times our sickness becomes our identity. And it becomes our value. And it becomes what we call ourselves. And it becomes how we live our lives. 
in our brokenness. And, that, and it becomes such our identity that we need someone to say, do you really want this as your identity? Do you, do you really want to be healed? Do you really want to be cured? And Jesus looks him in the eye and he says, would you like to get well? I think he asked him this question because he needs to reveal the man's heart to himself. Jesus does this to us periodically. That's why when you come on Sundays, many times you'll pull me aside after and say, Pastor, you was preaching right at me. I don't know what you was doing, but you was preaching right at me. Well, first of all, I wasn't preaching at you. I was sharing to you what God's given to me for you and for me. And so that's God calling you out on those things through those pieces. And many times someone will say, man, that was so good what you said about da-da-da. I was like, I don't think I said that. I don't know where you heard that from. I think you heard that from the Spirit through this message. Because I don't, that wasn't even my point. Like, I don't even realize, like, oh, let's write that down. That's good. I'll preach that next week. Wow. And so, so Jesus literally asking, do you want to be cured? Why? Because he's calling him out to reveal the attitude of his heart or the way he's gotten to what he's become as far as his identity. And, and listen, God has to do this to us. I'll never forget um, out ministering to homeless people. And I came around the corner and there was this guy. And, and so I, I was ministering to him. And as I talked to him, this guy had all the skills to not have to live under a bridge. He's in his right mind because many of our homeless folks are, are struggling with mental illness and things. This guy was in his right mind, and I was ministering to him. I was talking to him, and I was like, man, do, would you, listen, bro, I can get you a job. I know some guys that are hiring right now. In fact, I even have a place that you could stay while you're getting up on your feet with the finances. And the, I'll never forget the man looked at me and says, I don't care for any of that. I said, what do you mean you don't, you don't want any of that? He goes, no, no, I'm good right where I'm at. See, his identity had become... I'm homeless and I beg and I'm lazy and it's easier just to get you to give to me than me to rise up in my own self-worth and actually make something of my life. And Jesus is calling this guy out on that and he's saying, look, do you want to be made well? And I just need you to understand, God always sees the helplessness of what you have taken on as a disease. And he always sees what you can be if you'll just let him cure you of that. But you and I have to reach out and say, I want it. I don't want to be this. I don't want to be the pornographer anymore. I don't want to be the bad husband anymore or the, or the complaining wife anymore. Jesus, I see the disease even as you see it, and I don't want that anymore. And friend, I would say most of you feel that way or you'd never step foot in church. Come on, somebody. And then he gives him a command. He looks at him. He goes, okay. He says, then stand up, pick up your sleeping mat, and walk. Now, friend, you got to understand something. This man has been like this 38 years. And this is the big festival. And he knows that the cultural norm is that you don't walk around with your mat on the Sabbath. That has become, you don't talk bad about transgenderism. You don't say anything about these things in culture because you're going to get canceled. And so he was like, <laughs> you want me to do what? Jesus didn't ask him. Hey, would you, like, would you like to stand up and take your mat maybe? Maybe, bro. He didn't try to even entice him. Like, bro, I'm just telling you, if you take up your mat right now, guess what happened? You'll be healed. Just saying. Your choice. He gives him a command. He gives him a command. He says, take up your mat and walk. And the man goes, yes, sir. And one, the moment he does it, the Bible says he's cured. And he starts walking around. He's got his mat. He's got his mat. I got my mat. I just, I'm healed. I'm healed. It's the greatest thing ever. And people are like, oh my goodness, he's carrying his mat. 
that's wrong. I knew someone who used to carry their mat on the Sabbath, and they're not around anymore. Right? Oh, my goodness. Wait till the religious leaders catch him. Oh, my goodness. And, boy, it didn't take long. There's a guy over here, and he is carrying his mat. And I just, I just can't believe it. Like, how dare him get on an airplane carrying his mat? Oh, my God. Are you serious? Let's go. Get up. Hey, you, carrying your mat. How dare you? Who told you you could do that? Uh, some dude just cured me of 38 years of being homeless and diseased and sick and watching people look down on me and pity me and having no self-worth. It was gone in a moment. Who did it? Mm, I don't know. I have no idea. And Jesus like... Jesus is so cool because I'd have been like, it was me, the king of glory, and all your little fake cultural religious stuff. That's what I'd have done. And that's why I'm not God. There's still too much wickedness in my flesh. But the man responds when he gives him the command, and he does it. Years ago, years ago, I was doing this, this uh, young adult conference, and man, God was moving. People were getting healed. It was really cool to see a bunch of 18, 19, 20, 22-year-olds just like, yeah, we believe in the God who heals, which is a big deal, right? Because all of us have prayed, and it didn't ha work or happen or whatever. And so, and there was this one gal in a wheelchair, and she came up, and she was like, I want to walk. Would y'all pray for me? And all these young adults were looking at me. I was like, she asked y'all. She ain't asked me. I, I got to go meet with the pastors in the green room because I'm important. And they were like, yeah. And they started praying for her and praying for her. And then one of them said, are you ready to jump up out of this wheelchair and walk? And she's like, yes. And they grab her. And, they, and she, her little legs start getting a little stronger. And so, but she can't walk yet. And so, and so they go, what, what do you think's happening? She goes, I'm about 20% better. I'm like, yeah, and there I hear them in there yelling and screaming. I'm praying with them a little bit, but I'm going out and letting them have it. And after about an hour, they got her. They kind of got their arms around her, and they're helping her walk and a little bit and a little bit at a time. Let me tell you something. This woman's faith to say, you know what? I'm going to get up out of this wheelchair. It's what this man had to have to say, you know what? I will take up my mat, and I will walk. I will do what he commanded me to do. And sometimes what has to happen in your Christian walk is you just got to rise up sometimes and say, I'll do what the Bible says. I'll just do it. I'll just do it. Even if I don't like it, even if it gets me canceled, even if people, even if people just like, you know, judge me for it and think I'm being holier than thou, sometimes you just need to obey what Jesus said to do and let the chips fall where they fall. Are you with me? Say yes. Come on. Are you with me? Say yes. So was Jesus asking this man to break Jewish law? Was he contoning sin by saying, hey, we're under grace now? Not at all. See, the command in the Holy Scriptures was to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But what had happened over the years of translating what that means, the religious leaders had translated it so fluid and so controlling that they had gotten down to the place where, you know what, you can't even carry your mat on the Sabbath. You can't even lift your hand to help your brother who fell in a ditch. And Jesus is actually condemning the way that they translated what God told us to do. And this is what happens in culture and in dead religion as we begin to translate it so we can control others in a way to be controlling. He didn't break the command of God. 
God said, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Jesus is bringing about a truth that the Messiah has showed up. And remembering the Sabbath and keeping it holy is to do the work of the Father in the midst of the Sabbath and loving the hurting people of the earth, not, so, not going to work and, doing, and trying so you can get ahead by working an extra day, making extra hours so you can make extra income. In fact, the Sabbath was set aside because God said, I created you and I rested after six days of creating the earth. I Sabbath, and I made you to have a need to replenish. I made you to have a need to refresh. In fact, I love you so much. I'm going to give you official spa day with me. And I want you to remember that because the rest of the world is going to work their seven days. They're going to drive themselves into the ground. Their little bodies can't take it. Their mental states can't take it, but they don't know it. And because they won't listen to me. But you, my people, remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Come be with me. Let me refresh you. Let me encourage you. And in that process, they made it a religious duty where you can't do this and you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do that. And that's why so many of the younger generations like, forget church. Because over the years, we made it such a religious duty. It's, it's not a duty, it's a relationship. And this beautiful relationship causes me to want to do good and causes me to want to be around. Listen, I'm so grateful that you remember the Sabbath and you come and we worship together. But man, if you missed a Sunday, you're not, not going to go to hell. If you miss Sunday, you're going to burn. And I grew up in a church like that. And I'll never forget the first time I didn't go to church on a Sunday. I woke up and told Jamie, we're going to burn. I was, a, I was a grown man. I was like, we burning. I like this. I'm, I can't even do this. I mean, I, I'm, it was on vacation one time. I got to go find a church somewhere in this Florida, on this beach somewhere. I'm going to go make a church. I don't know. I mean, I can't do it. This is wicked. We not safe because I had that thing stirring in me. Are you with me? Say yes. And this brings us to the next thing that happens. And so as this man is walking around healed, they're trying to figure out who did it. I guess the scene kind of dies out and the religious leaders let him go and he ends up over in the temple worshiping and Jesus sneaks up behind him, I picture, taps him on the shoulder. He's like, it's you. And he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, let me exhort you with something. Stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. Let me exhort you. So I have cured you. I commanded you. I've cured you, and now I want to exhort you. Stop it. Because the end of that is death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. Guys, can I just tell you something? Jesus is talking about that the end of your life, bro, you'll put yourself in hell with the choices that you're making. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Hell is real. There's a real space. I know there's a lot of people out there that act like they're theologians on YouTube and on, uh, you know, TikTok and whatever else, uh, you know, Instagram that you're watching. And they've got a bunch of degrees and all that. And they want to justify there is no hell. Friend, hell is real. It was created for Satan and the fallen angels, the demons. But when Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord, our God, they put us in a state of sinfulness. And sin, unrepented of sin that went uncovered by the blood of Jesus will put us in a place called hell at the end of our life. He would that none should perish though, but all have eternal life. And he went to that cross so that all men, God so loved the world that, that he gave his only begotten son, that everyone, everyone who calls upon his name shall be saved. He made a way for all of us 
to come and spend eternity with him at the end of our lives on this earth. Hell is real, and you and I pretending like it's not, and letting a younger generation sit around philosophizing about, you know, that God didn't really mean it. He would never send little children to hell. No, he wouldn't. He wouldn't. But once we come to the age of accountability where we know the choices that we're making and we choose not to love him, he gives us the fullness of our sin for eternity. We'll have the fullness of our sin. You want a rebellion? Wait till you get to hell. And the rebellion that will be completely unleashed as every person in hell lives in the fullness of a rebellion. You want a perversion? Wait till you live in hell with every bit of perversion ever known to man being done. There will be no Holy Spirit to keep, keep others from hurting you in hell. There'll be, it'll be, that's why it's called constant torment. Right? Are you tracking with me? God loves you so much that he made a way of escape for what Adam and Eve created when they sinned against him. Are you tracking with me? Say yes. And so Jesus looks at him and says, son, stop sinning or something worse might come upon you. That being said, I want to give you what I see as a few of the life lessons. So Jesus, now his disciples are standing there watching all of this. They're, they're there. When he backs up in the crowd, they kind of back up in the crowd. What are we doing now? Uh, let's go over here and get some water. Okay, we're going to go over here and get some water. What about that dude you just hit? You want? Uh, people are asking who did it. Yeah, yes. Yeah, okay, let's go. Oh, okay. Like you don't want them to know it was you? So I don't post right now? What I'm, You want me not post? Like are we putting this on the website? What are we doing? <laughs> He's like, no, come on, let's go do this. Oh, okay, cool, 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 cool. Dude, that was, that was a trip. So, so why did you command him to get up? Why didn't you just like throw your hands on him or something like that? Why did you, like it doesn't even say you touched him. Like, like, I, like I always thought you had to put your hands on him for them to get a healing. And you just spoke it. In fact, you didn't even, you, you told him what to do, and when he did it, something supernatural happened. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of things I want to teach you about this. And he starts interning them. And I want you to learn from some of this apprenticeship. So we're calling them life lessons. Here's the first life lesson from this, and that is, number one, God's mercy and grace are limitless. He is the God of second chances. Somebody say amen. Because let me tell you something. This guy even says, now, now, this whole stirring of the pool of the water, this is, I love that scholars, especially non-spirit-filled scholars, will argue about what that was. That maybe there was rain, there was water coming out of the temple, and it had some special quantity, or maybe they had tapped into an underground spring that had, you know, more pure and more higher salt content, or had some type of healing agency. It was, it was in ancient times, it probably had high levels of, you know, dysentery because of what they ate, and because they didn't have clean water all the time love all of that but at the end of the day the only way we can read the passage and whether it be true or not we have to take it for what is said and that is an angel would stir that water periodically and anyone who got in that water while it was being stirred would get healed if if nothing else it's at least what this man believed was happening in 38 years he insinuates that he's tried to get in there but look what he says he says but I have no friend to help me in how much of a are you that not one friend will help you after you've been there 38 years he's that guy he he's uncle boo he's that dude that nobody like oh uncle boo's here man ah that dude is grumpy dear god can't stand that dude oh man he's so mean everybody i know he's that guy we all have that guy i mean you've met that guy at walmart in the parking lot like, dude, this is how you get stabbed, dude. All right, like, this is, 
you're going to end up all over YouTube, bro. Why, why are you acting like this? Right? You know that guy? Or in the female version, the Karens? I mean, he's that, that. He's got not one friend. No one will help him in. But Jesus shows up and says, that's the guy everybody hates, huh? Not only that, but you got to understand, theologically, in this time frame, the concept for the Jews is that if you were sick and you had done something, that, if you were sick or you had disease, then you had done some type of sin that caused God to judge you. And so this guy, since he was sick for 38 years, meant that God really judged him. And he must be in a lot of sin. He must be the most hated of all of heaven. This guy must be that guy. And I love that Jesus goes straight to him. There's other people sick and dying. But God, my God, goes straight with his mercy and his love and his grace. And he goes straight to the one who probably doesn't deserve it. Because everyone in that era, that guy deserves what he gets. Have you ever had that person in your life? You're like, hmm, you got in a car accident. Hmm, deserve that. We all think there are those who deserve what they get. But what I love about the God that I serve is that his grace and mercy is limitless. And he doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what his love cries out for. And that is unaccepted, un unacceptable grace and mercy poured out upon me, a sinner. And it, aren't you grateful that you haven't gotten what you deserve? Aren't you grateful for grace and mercy? I know I am. I, I lean on that grace every day and say, Lord, I know that I've not been that person I needed to be. But your mercy and grace has been extended to me. And you call me a son, even though I've acted like, even like I've acted like an enemy me your grace and your mercy do you not think that jesus knowing all things knows that this guy's about to sell him out he heals him and the man goes and rats him out it's a, it's a critical moment who told you you could do this because you got to understand dishonoring the sabbath the lightest sentence that they were going to give you is that they were going to they were going to beat you they were going to cane you if you will that was the light lightest sentence you were going to get and so the fact that this man didn't get beat is simply because he didn't do it. Someone did it to him. And so they couldn't beat him because he didn't purposely do it. He was just obeying as one of the lower level type people. He was just obeying what someone in leadership told him to do. So they couldn't beat him as a result. So now they're looking for the one who did tell him to do that because they're going to beat him. That's what's going on. That's this whole scenario. And the disciples are aware of this. Like, oh my goodness, he just told them to go carry his mat. So we, you, got a, you got a knife? I got, well, I got, I, got, I got these brass knuckles from back in the day. All right, we need that. We're going to be good. This is about to get nasty up in here, and it's a big old crowd. But my thought is we you hit the big guy first, okay? Once we knock him down. Now, Peter and them are planning it. And Jesus is like, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. And this miracle happens. Why? Because God's grace and his mercy is limitless. His mercy for you. You say, oh, pastor, I blew it last week. His grace and his mercy are limitless towards you and I. Get on your knees, repent of your sin, and get up and go on with your life. This is the God we serve. Are you still there? Say yes. Here's a, and that had to be a big deal for the disciples. They're like, dude, he just poured out grace on a guy who doesn't deserve it. Like, wow. Okay. All right. That's how we're doing this thing. That's the life lesson. Here's a second life lesson, and that is God has made provision for everything we need, but it's our responsibility to receive it. He's made provision. Everything we need. Anything you need. He says, I, I, the word of God says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, 
nor his seed begging for bread. Jesus said in the book of Matthew, he said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. Everything else will be taken care of. He's, ha he's having a discussion with them about, listen, why do you worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, how you're going to be clothed, your houses and homes and cars and internet. No, why are you worried about all that? He says, seek first the kingdom. I'll take care of the other stuff for you. What I love about the God that I serve is he doesn't give me all my wants. He meets all my needs. And this is the breakdown that has to happen between a narcissistic generation and a generation completely surrendered to Jesus. That Jesus is not going to give you everything your little bitty eye want. Lord, I need that Maybach. Lord, I've got to have it. It's the only way I'm going to be able to make sales in my business is if I drive a car that, out, that outshines everybody else. He said, I'll, I'll take care of your needs. So you may end up in a Honda Accord and still outselling everybody else. Are you with me? He will meet your needs according to his glorious riches in heaven. He'll take care of you and me. If you and I will just simply learn how to commit ourselves to the Lord, whatever you want, and then we can receive from him everything we need. But it's our responsibility to receive it. So that's why I ask him, do you want to be cured? Are you willing to receive what I have for you? But to receive what I have for you is going to take you trust in me, not trusting you. And I'm going to do it in a way that you don't necessarily want it to be done because I'm going to put you in jeopardy here in a second. But do you want to be cured? Do you want to be healed? Are you prepared for what's about to happen? Which brings me to the third life lesson, and that is Jesus' commands are more important than the cultural norms. Jesus' commands are more important than the cultural norms. I love every man and woman. I'm telling you, I believe that everyone is redeemable. But friend, you've got to stand up for what he said and stand with him. So whether I like it or not, it's what the word of God says. Whether I, whether I even understand it all. Whether, whether I, I mean, I'll never forget when he told me and he brought me through the scriptures to submit to those in authority. And then he said, and all authority has been set up by God himself. Like, no, you didn't set up that dude. That dude's wicked. That governor is wicked. I came from a state where the governors were wicked. I was like, no. But his word says, surrender yourself, submit yourself to the governing authorities and respect them and pray for them. And so you may not like our president, but you, better, you may not have voted for him. But the Lord tells you to pray for those in leadership over you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So well, I don't want to do that. I want to do something else. Well, that's your problem. That's your problem. Jesus' commands are more important than the cultural norms. And you can get yourself in a certain little group of people, and they've got a little culture. This little group over here has a culture. Yeah, but what does the word of God say? What did Jesus say? And let's just follow his commands. And that place is a place of safety, and that's what Christians are. We're those who follow Jesus, little Christ. In fact, when the term came, became popular in, in the first, second century, it was actually a negative term. It was Christians, followers. That guy cried, <laughs> Christians. And we embraced it. And said, yeah, that's exactly right. You can laugh at us all you want. You can make fun of us. But we are followers of Christ and what he said we will do. Amen. That brings me to the fourth piece, and that is the fourth life lesson. And that is following Jesus will involve conflict. It's going to involve conflict. Conflict with what you think you want it. It's going to create conflict maybe with, with your family. It's amazing how quickly people... When your life changes and you start following Jesus and you start becoming literally moral and goodness begins to exude from you, how people who have walked away from God, people who refuse to come to God, how judgmental and critical they'll become of you and begin to create conflict in your life. It's amazing. 
And what I've taught people to do is just love. Just, just love them anyway. Just love them. Anyway. I can't tell you how many of you have come to me and said, Pastor, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I've got, you know, I've, uh, you know, I've got this thing happening, you know, uh, their sexuality, and they're trying to put that over on me and my children, and uh, I'm trying to love them, and, but at the same time, I disagree that w- what the Word of God says. I'm supposed to do this, and I'm trying to do that with them, but they only are rejecting me and my family's cause. Christmas is a mess. Thanksgiving is a mess trying to be with this group of family members, and I keep just telling them, just do what Jesus told you to do. He told us to even, if, if he told us to pray for those who despitefully use us. He even told us to love our enemies. So this is not even your enemies. This is just family who's messed up in the head. And we all got that. And so how much more should you treat them with love and respect and kindness and still stand on what he said? It's going to create conflict. And so loving Jesus will create conflict. And what you've got to have the graciousness to do is stand in the truth that he will never leave you or forsake you or abandon you in that conflict he will watch after you and that at the end of the day guess what I've learned when I have stood for righteousness and people have gotten mad at me it takes sometimes 5 10 15 years but they always come back around and say you know PA I hated you when you told me that and I couldn't see that truth but now after three failed marriages and after a couple times spent in the, in the jail overnight, I just want to tell you thank you. Because you're the only one who has ever told me what God actually has to say in the scriptures right. So it may create conflict initially. But I promise you, at the end of it all, you'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus heals this man. And then his final thing to him is, hey, buddy, don't sin anymore. Quit doing that. Because ultimately it's going to lead to death. There's so much that God has for you. And you and I, if we let the identity of our brokenness direct our life, then we will end up in complete brokenness and breaking others along the way. And so my question for you and for me is the same question Jesus asked. Do you want to be cured? Do you really want to be cured? Do you really want to have a good marriage? Do you really want to have kids that serve the Lord? Then what has he told us to do? Let's obey his commands. One of the, one of the families in our church, their daughter had identified that they were going to be something different than the way they were born and, and connecting with, you know, you know a, a different, you know, concept of sexuality. And the dad came to me and said, can the youth group fix it? <laughs> I said, well, the Bible says you're the priest of your home. We're just here to come alongside and help you. But you're the priest of your home. And he goes, but I don't don't even know how to have a conversation with her. I said, well, then what do you know to do? He says, he goes, I know to pray about it. I said, well, I might intensify that a little bit. And he committed, he and his wife, to fast and pray. And somewhere in the midst of this fasting and praying, God grabbed a hold of that daughter, transformed her. She's phenomenal. I mean, phenomenal. The lies that were controlling her mind got broken. Guys, I'm just telling you, if we obey his commands, he will heal us. He will cure the sickness and disease of our generation. Would you stand with me quickly? Hey, thank you for joining us online here at Hill City. We're so honored that you would take the time to join us remotely and to celebrate the goodness of Jesus. I hope that word spoke to you. I hope that you were blessed today, and I hope that you are encouraged to go forth in the confidence of Jesus this week, 
wherever you are. If you made a decision today uh, to serve Jesus for the first time, we want to celebrate with you. Would you text DECIDED to 469-606-2684? And uh, we want to respond and again, just connect with you and celebrate the beginning of an amazing discipleship journey with Jesus. Don't forget, next week we are here again, same place, same time, 9 o'clock and 11. And until then, we hope you have an amazing week.